Hi, everyone. I'm sorry that I'm just finally getting to recording my sermon from this past Shabbat. Right after Shabbat, I came down with something and I've been a little bit uh, out of commission for the past two days. But Baruch Hashem, I'm back. And uh, it's not COVID. I took a COVID test. It's not COVID. But uh, it was something and it's gone. Baruch Hashem. So to this week, uh, before I get started, uh, I gave a sermon in direct connection with uh, Shana and Perry and a wonderful group of people in our community who organized a, a march in Ottawa. A really beautiful, uh, powerful, positive um, affirmation of what it means to be Jewish right now during these these tumultuous times. And I really, as a result of seeing that initiative from our community, I thought it would be important to talk about Jewish identity and it being positive versus negative. And there's been a, a great conversation in the Jewish world about the past, the present, the future, and what it means to be Jewish. If you ask your average American Jewish senior when they first heard about the horror of the Holocaust, they're going to generally tell you that it was only after World War II that the stories of what happened in Europe started going around. But during the five and a half years of the war itself, they knew that there was a war they knew that generally Jews were suffering, but not much more than that. I was just reading a book this week that came out in 2006. It's called Buried by the Times, the Holocaust and America's most important paper. And the book was by a veteran journalist and journalism professor Laurel Leff. I, I've had this book for a couple of years, and I've wanted to read it, but I don't know why I just finally got to reading it this week. And Laurel Leff researched the behavior of American newspapers in the Holocaust era. And the author decided to focus on the most prominent paper of the day, the, the New York Times. Using the New York Times to determine if it had reported, if it had reported the truth of the Holocaust at the time. And Professor Leff discovered that throughout the five and a half years of the war, the subject of the Holocaust was actually mentioned close to 1,200 times by the New York Times, including letters detailing exactly how many Jews were being murdered and in how many locations. So the obvious question was, and I would say the obvious question is, how could it be that publicizing the Holocaust in the press didn't arouse public awareness? Why didn't people get motivated to, to run to Ottawa, to run to Washington? Why weren't the Jews in North America motivated to do something about the millions of Jews who were dying in Europe? And the answer is painful. The Times did indeed publish articles on the Holocaust, but they buried them on the back pages. The articles that sometimes didn't even have headlines, 
out of the 1,200 articles during those years, only 26 of them made it onto the front page of the New York Times. And it wasn't because they usually had more important news to print. Left discovered that it was the intention. It was an intentional decision on the part of the owner of the Times, who sadly was Jewish. His name was Arthur Solzberger. He was an assimilated Jew. And he believed that Judaism was a religion, that Judaism wasn't a nation or a family. And the idea that all Jews are brothers and sisters was completely foreign to him. He rejected the concept of mutual responsibility. And so he had no sense of the emotional connection or the responsibility towards Jews who were getting killed and murdered in Europe. What's more is that he was afraid that his paper would be stigmatized as a Jewish paper if he reported too much about the Jewish problem. And the paper would lose its quote-unquote objectivity, which we know there's no such there's no such thing as objectivity. Everyone has a bias. And since he was the publisher and all his employees under him knew that he was very sensitive about the issue, the writers and the editors tried to bury the whole story of the Holocaust. And what's fascinating is that since the New York Times was the leading paper in the United States at the time, and it was the one that was supposed to publish all the international news, all the other papers followed its lead. It's been over four months since October 7th. In the beginning, there was a sense of connection that the Jewish people had that I haven't seen at any point in my life. And now, I think there's quite a few people who are still impassioned, but not enough. I think us, the Jews of a diaspora, I speak to us, the Jews of Montreal, the Jews living outside of Israel. We care, but how much do we care? Yeah, we'll, we'll send money. Baruch Hashem, they, they need it desperately. The Jews of Sterot are just starting to go home in numbers. They need our help. The, the, there's so many amazing causes right now. But do we feel it every single day? Do we feel what's going on? Do we feel the pain? Do we feel the war? We're still somewhat removed. And that's the reality. We can't change the fact that we're somewhat removed. But maybe we can learn. Maybe we can think about it differently. And as a result, it will motivate us, inspire us to not do what Arthur Sulzberger did. <clears throat> I think it's true, and it's painful, but we still need to try to understand how did it happen? 
that the entire Jewish world didn't step out of its comfort zone to do something during the Holocaust. And I think by understanding that, we're going to understand also what we can do, what you and I can do differently. This past week's Torah portion, Parshat Yitro, we read about the giving of the Torah. When God came down to Mount Sinai to give Moses and the Jewish people the Ten Commandments, the Torah tells us, and the sound of the shofar was strong. The entire nation and the camp shook. I've always wondered, why specifically is the blowing of the shofar a preparation for the giving of the Torah? The prophet Amos explains this beautifully, that the goal of the shofar blowing was Shall a shofar be blown in the city and the nation not tremble? The goal of the shofar in a person's life, the Rebbe says, is to cause an awakening and a strong shakeup. God wanted to wake up and to shake up the Jewish nation at the giving of the Torah. And the Rebbe continues saying that before the coming of the Mashiach, it is written that there will be a blowing of the shofar. Not just once, but twice, as mentioned in the prophets. The prophet Zechariah says, and God shall blow the shofar and go forth in eastern storm winds. And the prophet Isaiah says, and it shall be on that day the great shofar shall be blown. The Rebbe explains that these verses don't mean it literally, that we'll literally hear the shofar blowing, but rather it will happen through shaking events that will shake the world in general and the Jewish people in particular. And it's this shaking that is the blowing of the shofar. And that's what I want to talk about today, the shaking. There's no question right now that we're shaking. The Rebbe spoke along these lines right after the Six-Day War, saying that in our generation, there were two shofar blasts that shook the Jewish nation. The first event was the Second World War, the Holocaust. And the second shofar blast was the Six-Day War. The Holocaust was a trembling and and frightful shofar blast. It reminded every Jew that they were Jewish. Even for those who wanted to run away and deny their Jewishness, there came along others who made sure to remind them that they were still Jewish. It didn't matter who you were. Hitler didn't care if you were religious, didn't care if you were secular, didn't care where you were from, if you had Jewish blood, that's all he cared about. And this is what the prophet Zechariah was prophesizing about when he said, and God shall blow the shofar and go forth in eastern storm winds. He was referring to World War II, which brought about a storm to the world. And the second shofar blast, of course, was a six-day war, which shook every Jew everywhere. The Rebbe says that with the first shofar blast, that, that of the Holocaust, despite the terrible, terrible suffering and exterminations of six million, it didn't actually succeed in really shaking the Jews elsewhere in the world who had not suffered from the Holocaust. They wrote checks, they made donations, and they may even have recited a chapter or two of Tehillim if they knew about it. Definitely since then we have for the martyrs of the Holocaust. But by and large, especially the Jews of the diaspora, the Jews of North America, by and large, they lived their regular lives. 
But it wasn't the case in the Six-Day War, which Jews all over the world woke up, wherever they lived, from the strongest democracy in the world, the United States, to the most severe dictatorship, at the time, the Soviet Union, and everything in between. Jews everywhere stood with a mighty awakening and were ready to do everything to help the Jews of the Holy Land, whether donating, volunteering to physically defend the land with their bodies, or even learning more Torah and doing more mitzvot. Everyone was ready to defend the land. So why was the second chauffeur blast of the Six-Day War more effective than the first one? To wake up the people. Maybe we can say that with the Holocaust, what you had was a, a physical annihilation. You had a physical anguish. And not only did that not succeed in awakening the Jews, but the contrary, it depressed them. It drove them from wanting to be Jewish. So many people left that and said, I don't want my kids and grandkids to have to go through that and denied their Jewishness. That was not the case with the Six-Day War, in which people saw open miracles and how a little Israeli army succeeded in defeating three strong Arab armies. Not only that, but this same Israeli army also succeeded in liberating the biblical land of Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, the Shomron. These victories raised Jewish morale and created a massive Jewish pride. Jews all over the world got their feeling back of being Jewish, a feeling that it was an honor to be part of this people. It triggered a, a huge positive awakening. Even today, there are always two ways to awaken the Jews. And this is, I would say, the critical point of what I wanted to talk about today. There are a lot of people who try to awaken the Jews through preaching doom and gloom about the Jewish community. They wave about the Pew study, which showed that 78% assimilation in the United States. They frighten people with the dire warnings of a spiritual Holocaust. And they say, we have to do something for the Jewish people. But this doesn't move anyone. This generation doesn't want to hear about that. They don't want to hear about the doom and gloom. They don't want to hear about getting married because we have to, uh, you know, Hitler killed six million and we have to get the six million back. This generation doesn't want to hear that. I grew up with that. I know what that sounds like. I think so many of us grew up with that. We don't want to hear this anymore. We want to hear something different. We want to hear the positive message. We want to hear how beautiful it is to be Jewish. Not as we used, as they used to say in the old country, it's difficult to be Jewish, but it's 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 easy to be Jewish. Do you know what's going on? There's a resurgence of Judaism in the world like we've never seen before. How easy it is to keep kosher and Shabbat. The primacy of Jewish education. Today, there are many more kids in Jewish schools in the United States than ever were. And if they're not in Jewish schools, they are learning Judaism in a way that has never existed in the world. Thousands of Jewish kids go to summer camps, Jewish summer camps every summer. Thousands of people now eat kosher. Millions of people are doing mitzvahs and proud of their Jewishness. 
This is the message that we have to send to this generation. That the Jewish people need you, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually. This is the mistake that was made. Don't be afraid. Don't hide your kippah. Don't hide your Jewishness. You see this? This is how I walk around the streets. Proud. Proud of who I am. That's what the Jewish people need today. Don't back down. Be strong. Be happy. Smile. Instead of saying the world is a difficult place, the world is a beautiful place. The world needs your mitzvahs. The world needs your Torah. The world needs you. Israel needs you. Israel needs you right now to care. If you can't send money and you can't physically go there, then do a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah not because Israel needs you, but because there's a soldier or a hostage that is unable to do that. And you can do a mitzvah so because they can't do it. Hashem hears those mitzvahs. I think it's time that we safely declare that the Jewish people have a strong and secure future and that you can be part of it. And Hashem should bless each and every one of us that we should be able to be an active part of it. Hashem should send the 136 hostages that are still four months, over four months in captivity, innocent people in captivity. Hashem should send them home to their families today, now. And Hashem should protect the soldiers and protect the Jewish people. And I wish you all a wonderful day. I'm Yisrael Chai. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.